Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for joining us for an hour of science. I have to say, folks, I'm pretty excited today because I've actually got two of my team members in the flesh in the studio, which is kind of freaking me out a little bit, but uh, happy to see them. Good morning, Dr. Lauren. How are you? Good morning. I'm so excited. I feel It feels like Christmas that I'm actually in the studio. <laughs> Where's my presents? <laughs> I know. I know. They all came to me. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. And news in the studio. Good morning. Hello, Dr. Shane. How are you? This is only your second time, I think, in the studio, it is, isn't and it? It's so good to be here. Yeah, it's great it to was, be. It uh, was worth the drive. <laughs> oh, worth the drive because you're down in Geelong. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, of course, we wouldn't be uh, doing Einstein and Go in 2021 if it wasn't for someone being online. And we've got Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm feeling left out now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, actually, to Sounds be honest. Sounds like it's a party in the studio. Yeah, you are a bit left out. You're kind of small compared to the rest <laughs> of us in the studio. It's, uh, but look, it's good to have people in the studio. And uh, thankfully, uh, we are in a location here at Triple R where everyone takes things very, very seriously with regards to COVID. And... Um, basically hosed uh, Dr. Lauren down before she came into the studio. You never know. <laughs> Just got to be sure. But we're going to start off with some news. We've got a great show planned for you, though. Later today, we're going to be talking to a guest about uh, from Flinders University, actually, about sleep apnea. And then after that, we're getting into psychedelics, folks. So uh, prepare yourselves for that. Get some food in your stomach. <laughs> You'll need it, or you might need it afterwards. But it'll be, uh, it'll be good. We'll be talking about mental health with that one. But let's start with some news. Dr. Lauren, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I I'd love to. So um, we were talking a few weeks ago about all the cool things you can find in the deep sea in terms of animals. But I was reading this week about uh, a cool fossil that they found in the deep sea. So some scientists uh, recently have just pulled up a woolly mammoth tusk from uh, more than three kilometres below the sea, and it was 250 kilometres off the shore of North America. So really cool. So basically what's happened is, you know, back in prehistoric times, the animal has obviously died, been caught in some... um, currents and washed far, far out into the ocean. And the tusk is now all that remains. But because it's so deep, the very high pressures, very cold temperatures have preserved this tusk beautifully. And so they've just been able to bring it up and um, really start to do some amazing investigations into it. So they've identified that it's from the Colombian mammoth. And the really cool thing with this is that there were actually two different types of mammoth species. And at some point in history, they merged together to form the hybrid, which is the Colombian mammoth. And Mm. They're hoping that this tusk actually might be able to help them pinpoint the time in which that happened because this is a beautiful specimen, very well preserved, that they can do all sorts of isotope checking. They can obviously age it. They Mm. can look at the different layers to see what the mammoth had been eating and where it had been on the continent. So it's a very, very cool piece of um, sample for them. I I, I love that the the mammoth tusk, just recently actually, there's been a lot of research coming out on them where you can track where they've been, what they've done, who they've hung out with, the, the whole thing. Like their tusks record all of this information mm. as like a you know someone walking around with a GPS. It's so cool. So it's basically like an ice cream cone. So it's yeah. pretty much, yeah, the outer layer of the tusk. 
else, like a tree, yeah, you know, yeah. tree trunks. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Gives us all of this sort of information, which is great. Yeah. The, um, the other thing I loved about this story is they actually found this tusk in 2019 oh. and um, saw it was there. They tried to retrieve it at the time, but they broke a part of it off when they were trying to bring it up. And so that obviously would have been very stressful for them at the time. But they took that sample and then were able to confirm it was what they thought it was. They know that it's at least 100,000 years old, um, but obviously now they can do some proper ageing. But then they took a couple of years to work out the best way to retrieve it. And it was a large team. They had mm. every single basic type of scientist you can think of that would be involved in that sort of retrieval. And they've, yeah, managed to bring it up to the surface and are going to find some really interesting information. I, mean, I just wonder how the devil they found it. You know, like three kilometres down, it's a, you know, yeah. sorry, folks, it's a big-ass ocean. It really is. Um, how do you find the single tusk in all of that? And it's probably below some silt. Yeah, you know? that's it. And I, and I just would love to be, you know, in, in there when they, were, when they found it because you know, imagine saying to someone, I think that's a mammoth tusk. Yeah. You're like, you're three kilometres below the, <laughs> the ocean. ocean. Don't think you're right. But yeah. um, they were, obviously. I'll tell you what, though. If I was one of those researchers and I was giving talks about that, I would start off, I wouldn't be talking about outflows of, you know, sort of um, bits of, river flowing down to the ocean now it was a long time ago there was a big tornado and this <laughs> mammoth was picked up you know you got to tell the story oh, you totally. got to, yeah, tell you know how it got out there because that's a that's a long way for a mammoth it's to a float. really long way out it's yeah. it, it, and it would have it must have just blown their minds to find it so far out yeah, but um yeah. phenomenal stuff very cool phenomenal stuff. stuff thank you dr lauren uh let's go over to you dr ailey uh, online there what have you got for us Right, Dr. Hussain. Well, I've got some really interesting news about drought this week oh, yeah. and about cloud seeding. So this is, comes from a, a news story, actually, that's, that's just come through uh, from um, a place around uh, the southwestern United States called Taos in New Mexico. Um, some people might have been there before. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. But the southwest uh, west of the United States at the moment is in the grip of a pretty severe drought, and they've been in very severe droughts on and off for um, probably the last oh, 10, 15 years or so, and it's it's really one of these things that scientists are starting to take note of, and, and there's been a little bit of evidence that it's it's probably related to climate change. Now, one of the reasons it's related to climate change uh, is not only because of a reduction of precipitation in this area, but also because of warming temperatures, because this area is really, really dependent on snowfall for its water. So basically all, this, all, the, all the snowfalls in winter builds up um, snowpack on the mountains, which then melts in the spring and summer, and it kind of melts out quite slowly. So you've got this kind of consistent, um, you know, access to fresh water throughout the summer, which then gets you through to the following winter. But the problem is that uh, this snow isn't allowed to kind of stay on the mountains because it's either too warm, so it melts, so the snowpack doesn't start building up as quickly, therefore it doesn't build up as high, or with a reduction in precipitation as well, um, the snow just doesn't fall in the first place. Mm. So what uh, people wanted to do there, because you've got to keep in mind that some of these areas have huge river basins, the Colorado River, the Rio Grande, and um, the rivers are not that dissimilar to some of the rivers we get here in Australia, but they really feed... Well, they provide water for a lot of people and they feed a lot of the United States because they're used for irrigation uh, in farming down in the southwest. So farmers are really, really worried about this because they're in this extreme drought. So they wanted to, so management authorities basically wanted to do something called cloud seeding, um, which you might have heard of before. Now, cloud seeding is this process whereby you theoretically can make more rain. 
from uh, a cloud by giving it um, a little bit of extra ingredients, a little bit of extra oomph to make uh, more rainfall. Now, what happened in this particular case was that a lot of the locals were a bit upset about that. They felt that um, the, the materials from which uh, the, the engineers were going to be cloud seeding uh, might damage flora and fauna and there was a, a big hoo-ha and the whole thing got cancelled, right? But because of that, I kind of wanted to talk about cloud seeding, how it works and is it really that you know, is it really that much of a big deal? And the short answer is no, it's not that much of a big deal. We've actually been doing it in Australia for quite a while, on and off, um, mo mostly up near the Snowy Mountains and in Tasmania. Uh, there's been a lot of seeding associated with the, the Snowy Hydro and Tas Hydro. They're really into this stuff. And what is it and how does it work? Well, basically it works by injecting these tiny, tiny, tiny little aerosols, particles of what we call silver iodide. Um, they just flip them off the back of a plane. There's like a little hose that sprays these things into clouds. Now, the clouds have to already exist. They have to be already conducive to precipitation, except um, you just add a little bit extra. You give them a bit of extra oomph, so to speak. Mm. And so, um, yeah, so, so it does work. There's been studies, uh, including studies quite world-famous studies done here at uh, Monash University in Melbourne that have shown that this actually does work. It can boost precipitation quite significantly. Um, and studies out of the United States also show that it really doesn't have any effect. There's no adverse effects on flora and fauna, which is, is really good news because, you know, some people are worried that, well, silver iodide, may, is it a heavy metal? Will it get into the waterways and things like that? But it's such a minute um, that there really hasn't been any adverse effects. So, yeah, so watch this space because it's kind of interesting, you know, and as we as we move f forward with climate change, this is potentially a solution um, to help at least adapt to some of um, aspects of, of drought. Yeah. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, whether it's an accepted, you know, an accepted thing to do. Interesting, Ellie. I think uh, all these Band-Aids, if we have enough of them, We'll, we'll get by yes. in some sense. A lot of band-aids, though, we're talking well, about. Well, we'll get by. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's a better solution. Oh, yeah. There is a better solution. Yeah, there is. Who would have thought? There is another solution. But yeah, yeah who would have thought? It's interesting to hear yeah. about these things yeah. in detail, though, and, and know that, uh, yeah, they do actually they do actually work in some sense. So Yeah, yeah. they do. Yeah, I'm thinking of putting a, a, silver, a giant... Not... Yeah, I'm just going to put a giant mirror up in space and reflect all the sunlight. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But it's going to take me a couple of years to get the money to sort that out. I'm talking to, yeah. a, talking to a few people. <laughs> New, what have you got for us? Uh, Shane, so this week I came across an, quite, inter quite an interesting article um, over on New Scientist, and it was around red light therapy being used to improve age-related eyesight degeneration. Now, I understand, Lauren, this is actually your area. <laughs> um, however, today I'm going to be talking a little bit about the application because um, shining red light LEDs into the eye for a few minutes to, um, has been like shown to boost um, activity of the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. Um, it, is, it is an unusual application, I think, because, of course, now these days... You know, I'm pretty sure quite quite a few people have like these red light LEDs, possibly in the home. It's um, largely associated with boosting collagen production. So I think like I've got one of these. I've actually, I've actually got two of these at home. So um, just hanging around, just 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 hanging around, just, just lights <laughs> hanging around. Just, you can get like face masks and things like that. I gotta say, as, as a former, you know, not so much anymore optical physicist, when I hear people say like stuff like this, I freak out. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell is going? I on? I was about to do a big disclaimer. Please don't do this yes. at home. <laughs> to your eyes, this is yeah. not the same red light yeah, LED. No. Like, the term, whenever I hear about this, I, I remember. 
remember the term I read not that long ago, anal stunning? <laughs> and I think, I'm not so sure this is a good idea. Anyway, moving on. So researchers at University College London tested this theory from a previous studies conducted on flies, which shows that um, using red light LED therapy um, between certain hours, uh, so morning and evening, has different effects in, in terms of improvement. Um, this particular study did actually split up two groups. So they had um, a group that were exposed to red light LED on their um, eyesight in the morning and then one in the afternoon. They found that the best time to actually utilize this was between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m., and I'm thinking in terms of like, okay, mitochondria, you've got the ATP processes. And then, um, well, where, when is the best time then to use one of these, you know, at-home facial <laughs> LED applications? Could it also be between eight and nine? I'm going to go off and do a little bit more research around that. But did you know <laughs> yeah. that red light LED has also been used in space? In, in um, actually growing plants because mm. it does have some sort of like reproductive benefits to in terms of photosynthesis and also the flowering of plants. So all in all, I'm keen to see what other breakthroughs and applications will be made in this area because, of course, very similar to my area, which is artificial intelligence and deep, deep learning and, uh, and machine learning, these aren't new technologies. It's really in like their application that the novelty is really found. So yeah. keen to see what else we apply this technology to. Yeah, I think I, I, I always get a bit uh, jumpy when people talk about you know throwing light at themselves and so forth because it's it's weird you know because as a as a physics guy you know what we just see is photons of different energy Mm -hmm. and this is a this is a type of radiation so Mm -hmm. you know whenever you start playing around with this you think okay what's this going to actually do to me now in some cases our bodies need an amount amounts of radiation for good health and you know certain vitamin levels and that uh, you know require some uv exposure but Gee, I don't know. But we're even able to like improve the way that we're living and our performance in terms yeah. of you know um, different different ranges of blue light, which can assist with you know keeping keeping us alert. And yeah. that's a lot of you know even people over at NASA, the scientists there are doing mm. work around this, mm. trying to improve astronauts' performance in space. Yeah, um, improve our lives here on Earth. Yeah, it's interesting. We I did a story recently about uh, just how much. You know how much our eyes can detect uh, differences between blue and green light, and and culturally what that means in terms of language, because there are many cultures in the world that don't have distinguishing words for blue and green, mm-hmm. and you know it depends where you live. So if you live uh, near a forest and a lake, mm-hmm. you know you'll see two different things that are very distinguishable, and you're more likely to have two different words for the for the two different colours. I see. But if you live in an area where you d- you're not seeing that regularly, then you may not actually have two different words for blue and green. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And, you know they're so cl- they're so close in the eyes. Mm-hmm ability to text so it's fast it's all fascinating stuff on the line with us now all the way from flinders university is professor danny eckert danny is the deputy director and clinical translation lead in the flinders health and medical research institute and uh danny welcome to triple r how are you going very well good morning to your listeners oh it's great to have you on the line uh how are things up there at flinders look we're, we're doing okay yes we're uh, getting lots done on the, on the research front which has uh, been exciting Excellent. Now, you work in this very interesting area of, um, I suppose, something a a lot of people would be, uh, some people are aware of that they have this condition. Some people probably have the condition and not aware of it. And then there's a whole bunch of people who don't know it exists. We're talking about sleep apnea. Give us a bit of a a rundown on on what this is and what happens to the body when someone's having one of these sort of sleep apnea attacks. So sleep apnea is the most common sleep-related breathing disorder, and it actually affects over a million Australian adults and, mm. and estimated to affect nearly a billion people around the planet. So this is, this is a very common uh, respiratory disorder. And, and what happens in sleep apnea is when people go off to sleep, 
their throat area uh, from the sort of the back of the throat to the back of the nose, anywhere in that area actually narrows and closes off again and again throughout the night. So these people are still trying to make uh, breathing efforts, um, but the air is just not getting through because the muscles and things around the airway is, is relaxed, so it's, uh, it's associated with snoring. And as you can imagine, when your airway is closing off again and again, it really disrupts your sleep. And so you're getting a fragmented sleep, your oxygen levels are going down, so it's placing stress on your heart. And not surprisingly, um, people with uh, particularly severe untreated sleep apnea feel pretty rotten the next day, sleepy, more likely to crash your car, more likely to have mood disturbances, uh, and just generally poor quality of life. Hmm. And are people aware of it when it's happening, or is this something you sort of just wake up feeling like garbage? Well, uh, it's often a bed partner that, that uh, alerts um, the individual that, uh, you know, you look, you stop breathing. And as you can imagine, it's pretty scary when you see mm. your bed partner uh, having pauses and breathing and gasping for air and sort of waking up throughout the night. So that's one common. Now, obviously, not everyone has bed partners. So the ways uh, that it can become uh, apparent that you, uh, a person may have sleep apnea is that they wake up feeling unrefreshed, headaches perhaps in the morning. Maybe they've had a near-miss accident on the road, uh, uh, a lapse of, uh, of vigilance and uh, gone off the road and fallen asleep at the wheel. So these are, these are all common symptoms of, of sleep apnea. Mm. And in, in the clinical setting, how do you go about determining, you know, beyond the sort of, I guess, the question that I just asked you that I'm sure you would ask patients with regards to their, their health and so forth, how do you go about actually confirming that someone has the condition? So the the uh, optimal way is actually to do a, an overnight sleep study, and uh, traditionally they've been done in a, in a hospital or a sleep laboratory setting where you uh, uh, you know person with suspected sleep apnea comes in overnight. They get rigged up with uh, uh, recording electrodes to measure brainwave activity, so you can actually measure when people are awake or asleep, and oxygen levels, and uh, you know a variety of, of recording equipment, and have a, have a sleep in the in the sleep lab. Now, with sort of advances in technology, uh, in many cases uh, that can be done in the home now. Um, so that that might involve coming in initially to get set up with the, all the equipment, then going home and sleeping and bringing the gear back uh, the next day, so that it can be analysed and uh, uh, yeah interrogated to see if fact they, they do have sleep apnea or not. Yeah, it's good to hear that it can be done in the home. I always had this image of uh, these sleep labs where everyone would just be watching you from behind a glass wall and I would just never sleep. I don't know how, they, how that works <laughs> out. Is that, is, that what well, the, is that what it's like? Well, look, it, it, it can be a, um, an unusual experience uh, uh, for some, but having said that, um, you know, these are very quiet environments um and to be honest it's not particularly exciting watching someone sleep so so you know <laughs> you, you know the, the people that are watching are, are paying close attention to the to the signals and the, and the quality of the information that they're receiving so um and and you know the other thing is often people are very tired when they have sleep apnea so coming into a dark quiet room and and uh, <laughs> particularly for people that might be parents and things many people say they actually get a great night's sleep it's not it's not dissimilar to a hotel room in many in many uh, instances some of the facilities yeah, there we go yeah. and in terms of treatments i mean what what do we do um as standard for this i mean beyond um you know just someone whacking you and waking you up so you take a good breath i mean how do you how do you actually treat something like sleep apnea especially when it affects so many people 
Yeah, look, there's more and more therapies coming online. The, the first-line therapy uh, is, is a, de- a medical device known as continuous positive airway pressure or, or CPAP and was actually developed here in, a, in Australia, in, in Sydney, and uh, now benefits millions of people around, around the world in that they uh, you know, have, have reductions in their sleepiness, they feel better the next day. Uh, and uh, you know reductions in, disp- in depression scores and all the, all the consequences or many of the consequences I should say sleep apnea. Now the problem with with CPAP, however, is that more than half of the people that try it um, just can't tolerate it. You know, it's a, you're wearing a mask that blows yeah. air into the nose to keep that airway open. So very effective when it can be tolerated, but many can't. And others are just, uh, you know, 15% of the population are claustrophobic and may not be able to wear a mask and these other things. So really, that's that's a lot of the focus of the work that we do at the Adelaide Institute for Sleep Health at Flinders University is to develop individualised and alternate therapies for, for those who cannot tolerate CPAP. Uh, and some of those things include dental devices where you uh, uh, get a device that pulls the jaw forward um, fitted by the dentist that, that sort of stabilises the airway and, and, and stops those snoring vibrations or at least reduces them and opens up the airway. And there's more and more other therapies coming online now too, um, things like body position devices that encourage you to sleep on your side. Uh, there's weight loss strategies that can be very helpful if, if obesity is one of the related causes. We're now working on a, a series of sort of exciting uh, drug-based therapies uh, using existing and new therapies to to, uh, to activate the muscles around the airway when people are sleeping, to, to, to open the airway. And even things like exercises to train the upper airway muscles can help some people in, in reducing their, their, their sleep apnea and snoring. So there's quite an array of, of treatments mm. that are now becoming uh, available. The challenge is with those new ones is that, um, or, the, or, or those uh, second-line therapies, if you like, they don't work for everyone. So we, it's really important we try and identify who's going to get the best response. Yeah, and I, I suppose that leads into your your work, which is really about you know this you know what is becoming I suppose I want to, I want to say more common, but it's actually not that common is real personalised sort of medicine where we're looking at individuals and trying to work out what medications are best applied to which individuals and who gets the best benefit. And you, you've been using machine learning to to sort of match some of these things up, yeah. Yeah, look, we've 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 come at this from a variety of ang- angles, and yeah, this is some of the most exciting recent developments that we've we've made. We've been working on these sort of machine learning models with our colleagues at Data Sixty One at the CSIRO, so that because um, at the moment it it's really is a trial and error process. You know, you have to go through. Often, you know, ninety percent of people will try the CPAP, and then they're not sure about, uh, uh, and then if that doesn't work, they have to come back and try these others. So. What we've done is with our machine learning strategies is actually take the information that you get from a standard sleep study, use that in a more sophisticated way uh, on the basis of, of this sort of decade of work or more that we've done on these yeah, different causes of why people get their sleep apnea. And and this approach that we're showing, instead of a sort of being a toss of a coin as to whether people respond to uh, uh, dental devices and other things like upper airway surgery that I, that I neglected to mention also, we can now do it. Instead of you know 50%, we can get those in excess of 80% and above success rates using these kind of sophisticated uh, machine learning approaches, mm. which is you know very exciting. 
Yeah, look, Danny, it's really exciting stuff. And I think um, the more we move towards a scenario where we, we deal with individual patients as individual patients and work out what's best for them, the better in all areas of healthcare. Congratulations on this work. Uh, keep up the good stuff. And I, I, I think hopefully people are a bit more aware that this is such a huge issue um, that affects so many people. I mean, a million Australians is not an insignificant number of people at all. So, look, thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo. You bet. And sleep well. Thank you very much. Uh, folks, that was Professor Danny Eckert from Flinders University. Three. Triple. On the line with us now is Professor Chris Langmead. He is the Deputy Director of Monash University's spanking new Neuromedicines Discovery Centre down there in Clayton. Good morning, Chris. How are you going? Uh, very well, thank you very much. And we're in Parkville. Oh, you are, sorry, of course you are, because the, uh, there is that uh, Monash little, uh, what do we call it, the little uh, uh, takeover moment where uh, Melbourne Uni forgot or something, and across the yeah. road there's this beautiful Centre for Pharmaceutical Sciences. Pharmacy um, and Pharmaceutical Sciences, yes. Absolutely. Actually, the, I mean, the centre is, is headquartered there, but it's all, the, all across the, the university as well and, and the city. Yeah, fantastic. Actually, we've had a lot of guests on from MIPS over the years. Now, this is a, a new centre you guys have set up, and it really is working in the area of the use of certain psychedelics and so forth um, for mental health conditions. First of all, let's just talk about some of the mental health conditions that you're focusing on with the centre. Are, are there particular ones that you're going after? Certainly are, Shane. Um, there, I mean, one in five, I think, Australians in the past year will have had some kind of mood or substance use disorder. And that's that's a pretty devastating mm. number when you think about it. And that's, that was, there were numbers pre-COVID. So we're really looking at focusing on things like uh, difficult to treat depression, yep. uh, anxiety, uh, substance use disorders, which could obviously include anything um, from opioids to alcohol to cocaine. And there are other disorders as well that are perhaps not very well thought of sometimes in this space, but eating disorders, anorexia, obsessive compulsive disorders, there are a range of potential opportunities here. Mm. Now, give, give me a bit of an understanding of the use of psychedelics here, because my, my sort of impression here is that these are seen as a last line of defense for some of these disorders, whereas in, in my estimation, we probably should be bringing that forward and using it more as part of the integrated care whenever we're treating these these conditions. Am I, am I way off base there? Am I heading in the right direction? No, I, I think in many respects you probably are. It's, it's a, a result of a number of things. Uh, obviously, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, there was a number of government policies, particularly in the US, that led to the criminalization of the use of some of these agents. Yeah. And um, whatever your view might be on that, that's essentially suppressed uh, significant research into that space. And when we've made, made huge strides in the last couple of decades in terms of destigmatizing mental health and being open about talking about it, but it's really not been matched by a commensurate increase in a number of medicinal op uh, medicinal options available to patients suffering from mental health conditions. So people who are getting uh, prescriptions for therapeutics for these kind of mental health disorders are really getting medicines that are based on science that's over 50 years old. Yeah. And we don't accept that in cancer. We don't accept that in cardiovascular disease. And we shouldn't help accept it in mental health conditions as either. What the last few years has seen is a renaissance in 
clinical studies that seek to demonstrate the efficacy of some of these psychedelic medicines. So things like psilocybin that come from magic mushrooms, MDMA, as it's not exactly a psychedelic, it's, a, it's an enactogen. But the use of these medicines in a very controlled clinical setting combined or as an adjunct to psychological therapy as well. And that's a really important component of what we're talking about here. And the results are really quite astounding in certainly some of the trials that have been done recently. Um, MDMA, when combined with psychotherapy, is incredibly effective as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Uh, psilocybin, when combined with psychological therapy, is a very effective treatment for depression. And the notable thing is, is that often it seems you only need to give one, two, possibly three doses of these agents in those clinically controlled settings and the effects can last for weeks and, and months and this is different to obviously being chronically taking a, an antidepressant medication that frankly for many people isn't as effective as we would like it to be i, I mean the other thing there i am always mindful of and you know like many of us i've been down this path before myself is that many of the antidepressant medications have a absolute swag of side effects that are frankly pretty bloody nasty and you know in many other areas of our medications in our lives we would never accept that level of side effect at all but in mental health we seem to and i, I suspect a lot of that is due to a lack of options but how does that compare with some of these um these sort of i, I don't want to say new medications because they're not a lot of them aren't new but yep. med medications that we haven't utilized in the clinical setting as much what what's the sort the side effect profile of those ones by comparison well i think it's uh, important to think that you know that you're right about things like ssris and other mm. antidepressants other anti-anxiety medications they have they come with a wealth of side effects that um some people find intolerable mm. and you know that renders them unable to take them and you're right that we continue to take them because of essentially a lack of therapeutic options available to us if it's that or nothing um in terms of side effects from things like uh, psilocybin and MDMA, sometimes, for example, with psilocybin, you might get a sort of a nausea or sometimes in very few people, you get a little bit of anxiety um, because of the experience. But actually, relatively speaking, they're very safe. I mean, psilocybin is probably safer in an overdose than, it, than, than Panadol, for example. Right. So, so in many respects, the the safety profile is 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 very good and obviously you're only talking about taking probably one or two doses in in a setting in a clinical setting with a with therapists present so really you're not exposing yourself to long-term um treatment with a medication that might bring those side effects along with any efficacy that it has yeah are you guys sort of building off some of the the sort of subtle but important changes in terms of the way our society is starting to accept things like the use of medical marijuana and and so forth because to me you know when you look at that and the side effect profile of that it's really minor by comparison to things like codeine you know or even if you go up the the pain tree a little bit further you know yeah. for people who are chronic sufferers of pain these you know, the U.S. has an incredibly big problem in this space. Australia, not as bad, but, you know, we're, we're heading in that direction if we don't look for alternatives. Is that helping with what you're doing as well? Because it seems like there's a shift there that's occurring in terms of mentality. I think there's a shift in mentality um, in the mental health space, recognising the scale of the problem. And despite all of our best efforts, and they are many, let's not be, mm. let's not shy away from that. They are very many, and a great deal of attention is being paid to this space 
But really, I think what we're looking for is an evidence base to what is going to help the most patients in the most effective way. And if there is a path that is being trod by um, medical marijuana, um, if there is a path being trod in terms of um, advocacy for these different or the, the use of some of these treatments on the basis of the evidence that's uh, accumulating, then that's a good thing. And, you know, we note that the federal government um, put out a call earlier this year for $15 million to for clinical trials to research um, the use of psychedelics for mental health conditions. That's a fabulous step in the right direction. Um, we have, um, there's been a lot of uh, support aired by um, other, you know, other people in, in society about finding a path to use these medicines in a safe and effective way. And, and really what the centre is about is, is trying to do the necessary research that underpins this. We can't just assume that these things are going to be a magic bullet across all of the different mental health disorders that I've discussed. And it really is about working out, well, in which disorders might they work and and how do they work and what's the right best, you know, what's the model for psychological therapy that you combine with these disorders? And if they don't work in a particular condition, we need to know that because that's a fundamental basis of, you know, how we do evidence-based science. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, as as someone, you know, with a physics background, I still see all these things as just bunches of chemicals and we really just need to understand what they do. And if we can put that ahead of some of the biases against these drugs because of some of the used in the past then you know potentially there's some amazing opportunities so just before we go how how big is the center how many people are involved um what does that look like the center is is growing we have a number of people based not only at monash pharmacy and pharmaceutical sciences but at the turner institute the school of clinical sciences uh, uh, out at clayton and we have colleagues and collaborators both at the University of Melbourne, Florida Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health, uh, Phoenix, Phoenix, Australia as well. And really, the, the posit of the centre is that it, we're not only going to be doing clinical studies to look at some of these potential medicines, neuromedicines-assisted psychotherapy, but looking forward as well in terms of, well, how do we actually enact things like social change, behavioural change? How do we influence policymakers to bring some of these therapies to bear if they are successful in the clinic. Mm. And then right at the front end, we have work ongoing in terms of, well, what do these medicines look like preclinically? There is, there's a lot of missing data, as you alluded to, in terms of how do these things work? How might we be able to design better versions of these medicines? So, we, you know, there's a lot of pharmacy, you know, sorry, pharmaceutical sciences, medicinal chemistry, pharmacology and neuroscience to, to unravel there. So really the aim of the center is to go right from end to end, right from yep. the preclinical research through to, uh, you know, policies uh, that will actually benefit patients in the future. Yeah. In, in terms of uh, exactly that, the patient benefit, uh, I know in, if, you're, if you're a cancer patient in Melbourne, odds are you'll end up in a clinical trial. I mean, the number of patients, the percentage that end up in clinical trials is very, very high. A lot of people aren't, aren't aware of that, but, you know, we do have access to some of the best options here in Melbourne. It, is, is there any chance of it getting towards that in terms of this state with um, people, especially with intractable you know, mental illnesses and PTSD and, the so, and so forth, which really do not, many of them do not respond well to traditional treatments? Is, is it likely that more, you know, a larger percentage of our, our people here in Melbourne and around, around Australia will have access to these trials? Is that something we're heading towards? I think we are, I think we are heading in that direction. Certainly, there are there are 
there are small numbers of trials at the moment and they have relatively small numbers of patients. So let, let's be clear, but it certainly is a growing space. And already we're seeing trials for the use of MDMA and PTSD in Australia for, for psilocybin in end of life distress, for psilocybin in generalized anxiety disorder. And it's very much the hope of the center that um, we will be able to grow both the, the, the number and the scale of these studies to really form that evidence base across different disorders that we'd, we'd really like to pull together to to help as many patients as we can. Yeah. Well, look, Chris, it's great to hear that Monash is investing in this and that, uh, you know, it's open now. 10th of November, I understand, it just opened, so it's good to go formally the centre. I suspect it's off the back of a lot of work that's been going on for a, lo- a long time. Um, but, look, congratulations. Congratulations on your role as Deputy Director, and, and hopefully we will see, you know, firstly a removal of a lot of the stigma around some of these medications, but also their proper clinical application in the coming years. So good luck. Uh, keep us posted and hopefully we'll chat again sometime soon. Will do. It'd be great to come back and update you. Thanks, Shane. That'd be great. Thanks, Chris. Folks, that Cheers. was that was Professor Chris Langmead from the is the new Deputy Director of the Neuromedicines Discovery Centre as part of Monash University based here in Parkville, not far from the studio. Jeez, uh, it's weird having people in the studio with me here to chat to. <laughs> I almost had to um, tell them to be quiet because we're about to come back there. They're chatting away. Uh, all good. Um, now, I wanted to talk about something that is hopefully happening before the end of the year. And I know a news going to get really excited as soon as I mention this, but it's the James Webb Telescope, or should I say the James Webb Space Telescope, <laughs> important word in the middle there, um, that is at the moment scheduled to launch around the 22nd of December, maybe a day or two after. That's kind of when the hope is. Now, this thing uh, you may have heard me speak about for many years on this program and in recent years with disappointment as the launch day got pushed back <laughs> and got pushed back and got pushed back. But this is quite a extraordinary piece of equipment, probably one of the most sophisticated pieces of equipment that the human species has ever launched into space, I think. Mm. Um, the space shuttle was pretty complicated, but this is even this is something else. Mm. So let me just give you a little bit about uh, the James Webb Telescope because I think it's um, it's something that many of us are pretty excited about. First of all, where is it going to go? Um, so let's think a moment about Hubble. Hubble is in relatively close orbit of the Earth, which is which is great. I mean, and it's great because we can get to it. We can get to it and we can fix it. Mm-hmm. And, well, we used to be able to when we had the space shuttle. We can't do that anymore. But we used to be able to get up there and make some repairs. And that was good because there were some problems with Hubble when it was first launched. But it's been up there for decades now. And it's been doing a pretty good job. Great job. But Great job. But Hubble has a few limitations. And one of the limitations is it can only see in the visible. And so, you know, I mean, that's exciting to Lauren because she's into eyeballs and, you know, that's that's the best bit. But but, uh, it does cause some limitations if you're doing astronomy. Mm. And I'll talk about those in a few minutes. So, and so, you know, first of all, it's in orbit around the Earth, which is a bit of a bummer because, you know, it's kind of uh, really close to us and, and, you know, there's a lot of light pollution and so forth. Mm. There's a lot of things going on. But, you know, hey, we, we could fix it if we wanted to. That's great. We can't do that anymore. And Hubble's very much at the end of its life. Mm. And we saw recently there were some problems with Hubble that thankfully were repaired, but we're sort of getting into that secondary system mode now where, you know, the, we're on the backups, you I know. F- I feel like we've been saying that for a few years, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, Keeps on going. It's, I know. It's 
It's amazing. Yeah. It's like the Energizer Bunny. Yeah. And look, and whenever I, I meet someone younger than me, I remind them that they just don't make them the way they used yeah, to. Yeah, that's you true. Know, like this is, uh, you know, <laughs> Voyager 1 and 2, still cracking it. You know, mm-hmm. they've left the solar system. Hubble, still going great. Mm-hmm. I just replaced my phone because it's garbage. <laughs> you know, like this, this is the thing, right? I mean, they, they really do not make them like they used to. But look, the, um, the web telescope is a bit different. We're going to put this sucker about 1.5 million kilometers from Earth. And that is a long way away. Mm-hmm. That is much further away than the moon. And the reason we're going to do that is because we want to we want to park it in what's called a Lagrange point. So this is so if you think about you know the planets going around the sun, two things are happening. One is the planets want to fling off and go away, Mm -hmm. right? Just like you've got a ball on the string and swinging around your head, and the ball the string breaks and the ball flies off and hits someone in the head. Mm -hmm. Um, The planets want to go away, but gravity from the sun and from the Earth or or the planets um, keeps us together. Now, there is a point where the gravity from the Earth and the Sun and, the, and all of those sort of tendencies to move out into space um, equal out, and that's called the Lagrange point, and there's a lot of them. So there's a lot of these Lagrange points. For example, there's one partway between the Earth and the Sun where the gravity between the Earth and the Sun just even out and you'll just stay there. So how big is that spot? Like, how, how exact well, do you have to be with your positioning? Well, actually, not, not super exact. And mm. In fact, what, what you would find if you went to one of these Lagrange points is a whole of the debris, mm. most likely. And this, this can be problematic. So recently we talked about one of the probes going up towards Jupiter's two Trojan um, asteroid areas. Mm. Now, they're in front of um, uh, Jupiter in its orbit and behind. They're two Lagrange points. Yeah. Those are really extended asteroid fields. They're really big because those Lagrange points are pretty big. Um, but this one, it's not as big, um, but it's but it's a good one. Of course, I just said debris. You don't want to put a telescope where there's debris. Yeah, no. <laughs> so what we do is we put this, the telescope in orbit around that Lagrange point. So it actually goes out near the Lagrange point, then gets itself into a little orbit around that spot, mm. which is also a stable location for it to be in. Mm, great. So um, now this means it's a long way from us. So key point we can't go and fix it if there's something wrong once it's launched that's it it's game over and there's decades of work behind this thing now the new telescope the new james webb telescope is about a hundred times more powerful than hubble so it is a beast of a thing it's an absolute beast so the hubble telescope's got a 2.4 meter wide mirror Mm -hmm. so that's you know that's pretty big Mm 2.4 meters so the width of a car um the new one is going to have a 6.5 meter Mm -hmm. wide mirror and it's actually made up of many hexagonal mirrors so Mm -hmm. it's sort of it's pieced together um so it's several mirrors stuck together now the good thing about the new telescopes is um the bigger these telescopes are the further back in time you can look Mm -hmm. and with this telescope we can look back we'll be able to look back 3.5 billion years Right, which is incredible. Right. Now you might say, but how old's the universe? And the answer is 3.8 billion years. Mm, so we're almost close. looking <laughs> almost looking back to the very creation of the universe, which yeah. is amazing. So it's, it's pretty cool. It weighs a bucket load. This thing weighs six metric tons. Wow. Like that is a oh, lot. Gosh. We're talking about a bus, right? We're yeah. putting a bus up. Yeah. Um, so what rocket are they using? Uh, I'm not sure which rocket. I think it's 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 one of the the larger ones though. Uh-huh. Um, the Ariane rockets, maybe. Uh, yeah, or, yeah. yeah, it's I one of the large ones. Much. But mm-hmm. it's certainly, even though it's one of the bigger rockets, this thing has to be folded up for launch. Yep. So, and this is true of many of the things we're seeing at the moment. But this in particular requires a very very sophisticated folding mechanism mm-hmm. because the whole mirror system has got to unfold when it gets up to its location. And there's yep. there's certain things that sort of come online as it goes towards the Lagrange point. It's not going to be there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Even if we launch it on the 22nd of December, it takes about a month to get yep. to the Lagrange point. Because keep in mind, back in the day, it's a lot further away from the moon. Mm-hmm. It took about three days yeah. to get to the moon during the Apollo missions. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this one's going to take a lot longer, mm. and of course you're not going to be going quite as fast. So you know because there's there's not a big moon to capture you and put you in oh, orbit yeah. out mm. there. So you've got to get there, slow down. Oh. So it's a bit bit of a longer trip. But the um, the difference, big difference between this telescope and the Hubble is that Hubble sees in the visible spectrum like us, um, but this one's going to see in the infrared. So you know if you you probably notice this um, when you're you know you're outside at night you you see some of those colors in the deep red but then you don't see things in infrared you actually feel them you know it's heat right and mm. and you you don't see that but this telescope is going to be able to do that and it will do that in over quite a range actually so we we see between what is it lauren about 300 nanometers and about 680 nanometers something like that in terms of wavelengths mm. this one will see between 600 and 5,000 nanometers, so way beyond our visual spectrum and way beyond what Hubble could do. Mm. Now, there's some really cool parts about that because it means that we can... We can look back in time and look at different things because mm. all these old galaxies that are traveling away from us at very high speeds are what we call red shifted. Mm-hmm. So all their light is pushed into the red region that we don't see very well and mm. Hubble can't see beyond a certain range. So this telescope will allow us to um, to do that. So it's 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 a pretty spectacular beast. The mm. other thing is that um, so. This is the first time we've done this in a telescope, but it kind of has two sides to it. I like to think of it as having two sides. Mm. There's the side that faces us, mm-hmm. right? And the, that side has all the electronics, the transmitter, whole of the stuff, and that's, um, that's pretty warm. Mm. Like that, that side's pretty, pretty warm. But the telescope side, the detectors and so forth, we want to be really cold. Mm. And so it is behind this big shield, which will also unfold. Everything Mm. unfolds like a, you know, weird scenario. Yeah, yeah. Um, Origami. Yeah, origami. (laughs) That's the word I was looking for. Thank you, Dr. Lauren. You could see I was struggling. Uh, But that side will be at minus 370 degrees. So that is just above absolute zero, like Mm. just above. And so that will be super cold and that will always be in shade, Mm. which is which is kind of cool. So that allows it to do all this amazing infrared imaging and so forth, which is um, which is fancy. And there's there's two main parts to the telescope. Obviously there's the the imaging equipment that collects the light. And can give you images, mm. but there's also a spectrograph in there, so you can examine what the light is made up of, what mm. forms of light, and it will give us this incredible ability to look into, um, you know, the the far distant universe, mm. but also, and this is the part I'm super excited about, nearby planets around other mm. stars. Mm. So we'll be able to look at these planets for the first time and start to examine, like their atmosphere, yeah. and say, okay, what's what's this thing made up mm. of? And at the moment, we really can't do that. All we can do is look at these planets and go, hey, there's a big planet there around that star. Yep. Looks yep. good. <laughs> Looks good. Looks big. It's about, about 20 times the size of Jupiter. Yeah, there's always these, you, know, you get these weird sized planets and yeah. yeah. Oh, very interesting. I guess, you know, we're looking for our plan B for planet Earth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're going to need plan B real quick the way we're going. Um, but sadly, it will take us, you know, unless we find something really close and even really close is like a 30-year journey kind of thing. So um, we're kind of up the... I was going to say I was going to say something rude, but mm. we're, we're in trouble if we don't start making <laughs> making changes real fast. We're all the same. same yeah. <laughs> but I think there's um, there's just an incredible desire by many astronomers and, and and many people in science to start learning about how how unique Earth is and mm. and if if it is or it isn't. And I think we've we've all seen that amazing scenario that occurred when we um, when we first started looking at Pluto with the New Horizons mission a few years back, and you probably remember. 
you know, pre that mission, everyone was like, oh, you know, it's this frozen ball of ice and it's boring. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we're seeing active geology and yeah. active sort of surface changes and mountains of ice and all these incredible things. Mm-hmm. It just said, you know, that one that, uh, that, that planet, you know, planet X planet that, mm-hmm. you know, everyone thought was the boringest one in the whole solar system, probably the most interesting. Yeah. You know, forget Mars, Pluto's awesome. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, we, we, we haven't been able to sort of see all of these things until recently. And now these new technologies are coming out that are just spectacular. But I can tell you there is a whole lot of people over in both the European Space Agency and NASA who collectively are putting this web telescope together mm. and literally thousands of engineers and scientists who have gone into building this thing that ha- literally have you know bitten their nails down to the <laughs> stubs of their wrists yeah. um, freaking out about the possibility of this thing um, yeah. going up successfully because it's a one-shot deal you don't yeah. get you don't get two chances and I think if if this is successful it will be one of the most extraordinary pieces of science kit that has ever ever been built out in space or anywhere else so kind of cool but anyway there we go a little bit on the on the web telescope i'm pretty excited about it um we will uh i think it's right after our last show though um i was just thinking that bad timing we should get to bring it forward for us yeah we'll sort of (laughs) well you know i got some context i'll uh i'll give him a call dr lauren folks we're gonna have to hand over now to the team from eat it a new great to have you in the studio so good to be back and uh dr lauren good to have you in the studio as well the best ailey was online which was great and big thank you to our two uh guests remember folks uh psychedelics um take it easy be, be careful. Um, mm-hmm. But some really interesting stuff coming up there. Be I think. safe. Yeah, be safe. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a magnificent Sunday, and we will see you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.